You are now listening to the August 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screwtape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screwtape Letters. everyone, this is Terry, the host of our program, The Screwed Tape Letters. We have been meditating on spiritual battles by reading through the book, The Screwed Tape Letters. This book was written by C.S. Lewis, known as one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. Today, we will reflect on the seventh letter of Screwed Tape Letters. For those of you listening to us for the first time, here is a quick synopsis. This book features two devils a seasoned devil named Screwtape, and a novice devil named Wormwood that happens to be his nephew. The uncle devil writes letters to his nephew devil. The veteran devil, Screwtape, explains various strategies to help his nephew grow into a successful devil. Please note that since the letters are written by a devil, humans are called patients, and Christ is called our enemy from the devil's perspective. In letter number 7, episode to his nephew, Wormwood, Screwtape addresses the current position of patience as creatures created by God. As spiritual beings, humans belong to the eternal world, but due to sin, they face death. While possessing eternal life spiritually, their earthly life is finite. These two attributes coexist simultaneously in humans. The enemy, by which the devil means God, commands those who follow him to live lives of unwavering faith. This faith is to be unaffected by the ever-changing times, situations, emotions, or physical conditions. The process involves experiencing fluctuations of life as we pass through peaks and valleys. When we hear the word fluctuation, what comes to mind? Here, fluctuation refers to the rise and fall of fortunes, power, or momentum like fluctuating stock market graphs. Screwtape explains that humans experience such fluctuations in every aspect of their lives. They go from peaks to valleys, constantly oscillating between these two states. For example, such fluctuations happen to work interests, affection towards friends, and even bodily desires. As long as humans live on this earth, they experience highs and lows, a period of abundance, vitality, and excitement followed by a period of apathy, indifference, and deprivation. From the perspective of the devils, this fluctuation is a natural but useless phenomena of humans serving no purpose. In general, people say fluctuations are a common phenomena that happens to everyone. What then about us, the believers? Well, we too, of course, experience such fluctuations. There are moments in our spiritual lives when we are filled with awe and passion, especially when we first met the Lord and established our commitment. When we are in such spiritual high, we express gratitude in all things and experience abundant grace. However, there are times when we feel indifferent to God's word, we lack tears or laughter, and we do not get excited about the missions and acts of charity. We go through recurring periods of spiritual highs and lows. Personally, I have experienced such fluctuations. There was a time when I doubted if the Holy Spirit had left me, so I sought advice from my pastor. My pastor told me that the Holy Spirit does not come and go. Once we become a Christian, He is always present in us, 
making us aware of our current spiritual state. The pastor also mentioned that everyone experiences fluctuations, and if we were to graph the fluctuations with time on the x-axis and spiritual maturity on the y-axis, the line would show an increasing pattern. However, when we zoom in, the line would show lots of little fluctuations jumping up and down. That explanation was very helpful for me. I realized my concerns constituted one of those small valleys in a long-term trend of increasing faith in the Lord. Therefore, we should not perceive spiritual fluctuation as something wrong and fall into discouragement or self-condemnation. If we feel our faith is unsteady, fluctuating, and weak, and we become discouraged, blame ourselves, or condemn ourselves, we should know that there is only one thing that takes pleasure in seeing us in such a state. That is Satan. Screwtape explains to Wormwood how their enemy uses the period of spiritual downs when patients walk through the valleys to train them and elevate their faith to become stronger. Instead of placing humans at the peaks, their enemy prefers to keep them in the valley to help them grow to attain unwavering faith. Screwtape reminds Wormwood that humans, the enemy cherishes the most, had to pass through long and dark valleys in their lives. We are all aware of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, Paul, and many others, all of whom had dark moments walking through treacherous valleys. As we walk through these valleys, we come to realize who God is and what our existence means to Him, and we progress to a stage of relying solely on the Lord. Of course, the devil does not like this. The devil would constantly try to tempt, deceive, and seduce the patients to waver, pressing them to turn away from the truth and live in a self-centered, idolatrous life. By doing so, he attempts to expand this realm of Satan, the power behind these idols. Here is an excerpt from Screwtape's seventh letter. Please keep in mind when Screwtape refers to our father below, he is referring to Satan. And when he says the enemy, he means God. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself creatures whose life, on its miniature scale, will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our Father below has drawn all other beings to himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him but still distinct. Screwtape says that his enemy, our God, desires a world full of people who are united with him but still distinct. Indeed, Christ does not subdue human willpower with the force of inevitability or suppress their desires and thoughts. Screwtape explains how the enemy may occasionally have a slight semblance of control over the patients, allowing them to experience the torment of God's absence, but such a state does not last long. Fundamentally, the enemy desires the patients to learn to stand on their own strength, even if it means that their pure passion for following the Lord disappears, leaving only a sense of obligation. The hidden intention behind this is to enable them to complete the race of faith with their own will to follow the Lord. 
Additionally, Screwtape clarifies that humans, when stuck in the valley rather than at the peak, tend to grow into the kind of creatures the enemy desires. Prayers lifted from desolate valleys are what please the enemy the most. Even if the patient becomes discouraged and may lose the desire to follow the enemy, and they feel as if they have been abandoned, as long as they remain faithful, God will see them through the valley. Screwtape recognizes that there is no greater threat to the devil's agenda than when obedience to their enemy, our God, is maintained amidst trials. In the midst of hardship, when we obediently follow only the Lord, the devil's tricks are of no use. Instead, it will pose a significant threat to their objectives. We must actively oppose Satan by doing so, right? Let us read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-19 as we conclude our program today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful Creator while doing good. Amen.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is, Faith Comes Through Hearing the Word. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. In the year 490 BC, before Christ, the Persian Empire invaded Greece. There was a huge battle in a place called Marathon, which is roughly 26 miles away from the city Athens, which was the the capital of Greece at the time. And as you can imagine, a battle like this would have created a lot of uncertainty within Greece. These foreign invaders have come in. While the army is out at war, citizens would be waiting at home, anxious to find out if their homes were going to be invaded. Would their homes be overtaken by a foreign empire? It's hard for us to imagine a world where there are long delays between events that happen and us finding out about those events. Today, if something happens, almost anywhere in the world, we know about it pretty much instantly. We live in a different sort of time, but it wasn't always like that. Before the internet, before electricity, before the telegraph, it was a little more difficult to spread news. It traveled much more slowly. And so here the Greeks are, waiting for a life-and-death urgent message. Well, the Greeks won the Battle of Marathon, and they defeated the invading army. And as the story goes, they sent a man named Phaedipides as a courier. He's a messenger to bring this message of good news back to the city. And so he ran 26 miles into the city with this great news, and as he arrived, he shouted the good news. The, the Greek word is Nike, where we get our word Nike from. The war was won. The enemy was defeated. The means by which the message arrived, this good news arrived, was the courier who traveled on foot. This is weird to us because news gets to us immediately. But this was a concept here where there's a delay between what happened and hearing about it 
But the Old Testament Israelites would have been familiar with this. The New Testament church would have been familiar with this concept of needing a messenger to bring good news to us. That highly anticipated good news would be met with joy. There was anticipation, and here comes the message, and it's met with joy. Well, in the same way, the gospel is a message of victory that should bring us great joy. The news that Christ is the end of the law has reached us. The message that we can receive the righteousness that we need by faith alone has come near to us. The word that Satan has been conquered by the blood of the Lamb has arrived. The report that God has achieved full and complete victory over the powers of death and sin and hell in the person and work of Jesus has been published. Our happiness, our joy, created by God and in desperate need of some good news, of salvation, devil, this gospel. But not everyone receives this message with great joy. And in today's passage, we see that some of Israel, for example, though they had heard the message, they had understood the message, they did not trust the message. They responded to the gospel with, with gospel with disobedience and opposition. So I submit that the big idea of today's passage this morning is this. The highest aim of preaching is faithful gospel proclamation met with faithful reception. And I've got just two main points for us. The first, gospel preaching pursues the obedience of faith. See that in verses 14 through 17. And then second, God offers his gospel to disobedient people. We see that in verses 18 through 21. Point one, gospel preaching pursues the obedience of faith. We see this hopefully from verses 14 through 17. Just before our passage this morning, starting in verse 14 and verse 13, Paul told us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the proper response to the gospel. You hear about the gospel, the salvation now that has been freely offered in Christ, and you believe, you trust the message. You put your faith in Jesus and trust in his righteousness and not in your own. You respond in faith by calling out to God. Paul calls that response the obedience of faith. And so he put a great emphasis on the necessity of preaching. Notice in verses 14 and 15, first, that the church is responsible to promote faithful gospel preaching. This is point A under 1, 1A, from verses 14 and 15 in particular. The church is responsible to promote faithful gospel preaching. Let me just read verse 14. How will then they call on him in uh, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So in these two verses here, we have four rhetorical questions that are in a row to illustrate a point. There are six allusions to the Old Testament just in these eight verses, and we won't be able to obviously go into each of them in detail. But logically, what's happening here is Paul is painting a picture. Follow this train of thought here. In order to respond positively to the gospel... Someone's going to need to hear the gospel first. 
So notice the action words that are just there in these verses, in verses 14 and 15, the action words, the verbs, call, believe, hear, preach, send. To believe that God would save her, this hypothetical person, well, she would have to hear about who God is. She would have to know what God has done for her in Christ. Well, in order to hear that information, who God is and what he's done for her in Christ, she'd have to have someone preach to her to publish that good news. And in order to have one preach to her, they would need to be sent with that good news. This is the, the chain of thought here. Now, if we just flip that order backwards, it becomes even more clear. You start at the end and you can see the train of thought even more clearly. Christ sends a messenger. The messenger preaches. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call. And those who call are saved. That really is the chain of thought that Paul is painting out here. And it makes a lot of sense. It's irrefutable. That's the clear flow of thought, what it, what it takes, humanly speaking, for someone to become a Christian. I sort of think of this as the human responsibility angle of the golden chain of redemption that we see at the end of Romans chapter 8, where we see all of God's divine activities and bringing someone to faith and justification and glorification. Here, it seems like we're getting the human angle, humanly speaking, what is necessary for someone to come to faith. What is our responsibility, knowing the gospel? But even here, in these verses, notice that the first thing that has to happen, the first actor is God. God must act first. Step in this chain is for Christ to send a messenger. I know it's at the end of the the passage here, but really, logically, the first. And that's why our header here, under 1A, is that the church is responsible for promoting faithful gospel preaching. Someone must send them. Gospel preachers don't send themselves. The word apostle, which means Someone who is sent is a word that comes up a lot in the New Testament, and you understand that that is someone who has been sent on the authority of someone else. They've been deputized under the authority of someone who has sent them. So where does that authority come from? Well, Paul tells us earlier in the book of Romans where his authority of apostleship came from. He received apostleship as a grace from Christ, which means he was sent by God to bring the gospel out, the obedience of faith into the nations. So Christ sent Paul as uh, an apostle with his good news to deliver that message. The office of apostle is over. There are no more apostles now that scripture has been finished, for the sake of clarity. But Christ is still sending folks out with that same apostolic message. The message that Paul had, God's gospel, is the same apostolic message that I hope to proclaim to you from his word this morning. How is Christ doing that? How is Christ sending people out with this gospel message? Through his church. Christ's authority to call preachers and to send them out on his behalf comes through the authority that he has established in his church. His one, holy, universal, and apostolic church. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Why am I making such a point out of this? In part, because I would love for you to be a little bit extra careful with anyone who says that they're a Christian thought leader or preacher or author or speaker or poet or musician who does not belong to a faithful local church. It's the job of the church to recognize, to equip, to support, to authorize gospel preachers. And it's the job of the church 
to make sure that that gospel preacher is maintaining fidelity to the apostolic message. This definitely, of course, applies to qualified men who are called to pastoral ministry within the church, but I would suggest it also applies to men and women who are sent out as evangelists into the world with the same message of the gospel, both locally in evangelism and then globally through missions. We gather around the word and worship, and then we're sent back out with the gospel message in order to share it with those whom we come across. So you are invited to bring the gospel to anyone you come across. And if you want to buy some expensive Jordans, that's on you. We know that you know the gospel, if you're a member of Trinity, because we ask you to articulate it to us when you join. So you can't say, I don't know what I need to know. You do. You have what you need to know to share the gospel. I hope that you would be faithful with those opportunities, to to pray for those opportunities, to engage in them. But this has implications not just for local evangelism, but also for missions, for missions as well. In order to be sent out as a missionary, someone really needs to be trained and well-known in a faithful church first. In order to be sent out as a missionary, it might be irresponsible uh, to do it yourself. If you call yourself a missionary and enter into the field without proper training or preparation or the sending authority of a church, that's why missionaries really should be vetted and trained and known within a particular little church for a time before they are sent out. Sent out with the church's approval, the church's support. The same thing would apply to church plants, I would suggest. They should be started from other churches. Churches should not plant themselves out of thin air. Listen, I'm not saying that parachurch ministries like missions organizations or church planting networks are not helpful. They can be very helpful as supports to the church, but it's the church's responsibility in the end to be God's primary instrument for missions and even the final product of missions is planting more local churches. This is God's gospel. This is the way it's introduced in the beginning of Romans Our responsibility as a church, like any faithful mailman, is not to open up the envelope and switch some details. Our responsibility is simply to deliver the message. We don't change the message. We simply faithfully deliver the message and let it do its work. The church is responsible to guard and to promote the gospel. And he involves us in this, in playing a part in letting people know that they can call on the Lord to be saved. It's an important time for the gospel to be heard in order for it to be received. But it's not just enough for it to be heard. One must obey the gospel. 1b, from verses uh, 16 to 17, hearing the gospel is not enough. One must obey it. Verses 16 and 17 say this, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah is to believe that he is the end of the law. This is verse 4, chapter 10. To believe the gospel is to obey the gospel. These are synonymous terms for Paul. He's using them interchangeably almost. And we can see this elsewhere from Scripture, like Abraham. Abraham obeyed the call of God on his life to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 11. In the gospel... We hear the call to repent and to believe, and so it is our responsibility to respond in repentance and in faith. The letter to the Romans begins and ends with this phrase, the obedience of faith. In the beginning, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, 
right at the beginning of Paul's letter, he says that he received grace and apostleship, that means he was sent by God, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is the beginning of the book of Romans. And then even at the end of the book of Romans, in chapter 16, verse 26, Paul there again says the gospel has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, see that missionary impulse, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So this concept of obedience of faith going out to all the nations is a repeated theme in this letter, and we can see it playing out even here in our passage this morning. Now, Paul is still dealing with the role of Israel. There's a difficult topic here. Israel has been given these promises, and yet they are rejecting said promises. He quotes from Isaiah to establish the principle that not everyone who hears the gospel will respond positively in faith. Faithful gospel proclamation is not always met with faithful reception. I hope that's an encouragement to you in your evangelism to know that that is something that you ought to expect. Not all will obey. That's an understatement. There's a minority of those who will obey. It's a relative few who hear the gospel and respond in faith and who will call out for salvation. But we saw this play out even in the earthly ministry of Jesus in John chapter 12. He alludes to the same verse here as well. John does. So Jesus in this passage has just explained that he would be lifted up, he would be crucified, and he would draw all men to himself. He's explaining who he is and what he's come to do. John 12, verses 36 through 40 then say this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So faith comes from hearing who Jesus is. He just explained who he was, and they did not receive it faithfully. They rejected it. Of course, this doesn't mean that it's exclusively something that only can be heard. Faith comes from hearing. We would understand that this would include even Braille. You can feel the words in that sense. You can see the word. You can hear the word. It's really just a matter of processing the information, bringing it into your mind. The good news must be published in order for that to happen. But that gospel is not always met with faith. Sometimes the gospel is met with disbelief. Sometimes it's simply met with disinterest or distraction. Have you thought much about your responsibility to listen actively to preaching? I mean, evangelistically, someone might reject the gospel, and that's a a sobering thing to think about, but this doesn't only apply to non-Christians. Have you considered what your responsibility is in listening to preaching? In terms of your discipleship, do you consider yourself someone who is a hearer of the word only or a doer of the word Uh, Even if you hear the word, you recognize that that does not mean that you're listening. Do you understand the distinction between those things, uh, hearing it, but not actually listening to it? We train ourselves in distraction to the point that we only half pay attention to things much of the time. It genuinely takes effort to follow along and actively listening to a sermon. I know. I'm out there often as well. 
Preaching is not a professional performance for your listening pleasure. Faithful preaching is exposing you to God's voice through his word. This is not a passive activity for you. You and I are in this together. We're kind of a team. I'm laboring to explain. You're laboring to listen. My goal is to make continual progress as a preacher, slowly, step by step. But when I'm in the pew, I have a responsibility there to increase step by step, incrementally, progressively, to be a better listener, hearer, actively listening to the word as well. Jesus gives the parable about the word landing on different types of soil, parable of the soils. Some hard soils don't allow the word to settle in, don't allow the word when it comes and falls to take root, but some ground has been tilled. Uh, The weeds have been pulled, the dirt clods have been broken up so that the seeds, when they fall on it, might take root. Now, if we follow that analogy, we recognize that that doesn't happen by itself. It needs to be cultivated, in a very literal sense, in the parable, in order for that seed to fall on soil that would accept it, receive it, absorb it, allow it to grow down. Your heart needs to be cultivated so that it's softened to God's word and not hardened. This is not something that passively happens. How can you, how can I, improve on our hearing of the word of Christ so that our faith might be continued to be built up as we gather here and worship together? First, You should be hearing God's word more than once or twice per week to develop an appetite to recognize God's voice, to listen to God's voice. You're going to need to be exposed to it more often. You'll need to make a practice of listening to God's word to improve your ability to actively listen. Regular Bible reading throughout the week is simply a must. Pray to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. We all need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and to listen Be consistent in church attendance. If you're willing to regularly make flimsy excuses to dismiss yourself from the gathering of saints, that could be a sign that you're bored with God's word. And that might be a sign that you're one of the types of soil that you shouldn't want to be like. Maybe you've heard the statement that Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. I like that. So are you working on Saturday to do what you can to make Sunday mornings more effective? Like getting enough sleep, for example. Arrive with expectation. What might God, by his spirit, in this particular moment in time, be wanting to say to you? Sing with enthusiasm to stir up your heart, to stir up your affections in order to praise God and to value his word as you ought. Pay close attention to prayer so that by the time the prayer is done, you can, you can say with integrity, Amen. I know what he said, what he just said, and I'm on board with it. Amen. Take notes. During the sermon, you don't have to necessarily write down everything, obviously. The main ideas are meant to be helpful. And you might think, well, that's kind of a waste of a time. I don't actually go back and review those notes during the week. I want to suggest that even if you take notes during the act of preaching, it helps your mind focus. And maybe you're different. Definitely the way it works for me. It just helps me to follow along with the train of thought. Fight distractions. Silence your phone. Put your phone away. Use the restroom and drink water before the service starts so that you don't need to get up during the service to be a distraction for yourself or for others unless there are emergencies. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I know that people have gotten up and come back in. That didn't just happen on the fly. So I will apologize to you later if you're offended. 
<laughs> the principle stands. Ask yourself actively, track along with the thought. Ask yourself if what the preacher is saying is a right interpretation of the passage. You have to pay attention to know. Figure out if it's biblical. Is it supported with other scripture? Is he applying it rightly? These are things, these are questions that you ought to be asking, interpreting, actively listening along with the sermon. We enter God's holy church on Sundays to have our hearts reformed by his word in gathered worship, through preaching, through singing, through prayer. We meet, we are meeting with the living God. God graciously extends his gospel and we are responsible, we are culpable to receive it faithfully. That's not always the case with everyone, as we know. And it wasn't the case for the majority of Israel during Paul's day. God offers his gospel to disobedient people. I'll read those verses again for us. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did not did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul asks a question here in verse 18, and then he responds to it, he answers it, and then he alludes to the Old Testament as is his habit. He does the same thing again in verse 19. So he's asking these two questions. Let's just follow along with him. And remember, these chapters here, really from 9 to the end of 11, are dealing with the the difficult fact that so many within Israel, God's chosen people, have rejected the promised Messiah. All who call on the Lord will be saved. And in order to do that, of course, you've got to hear the message. And so the question then comes up naturally. Verse 18. Okay. Well, maybe Israel didn't get the message then. Maybe that's why they're not responding. Have they not heard, he says? No, they've heard it. And then he riffs on Psalm 19, where he says, quote, their voice has gone out to all their earth, all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul alluding to Psalm 19 here, King David wrote Psalm 19. And in the original context here, David is talking about how the, the heavens declare the glory of God throughout all the earth. So God's existence is evident throughout nature. Paul grabs onto that concept and then applies it to the gospel message that goes out now to all people. Just as the heavens declare God's existence, his church now declares his salvation. So Paul infers that the gospel has already gone out into the ends of the world. What could he mean by that? We know that Paul realized that the gospel had not reached everyone yet. He says in verse or chapter 15, the gospel still needs to go to Spain. Right? He knows that it still needs to be extended. So what does Paul mean here that it goes out to the ends of the world? I would suggest that it probably means that it includes the Gentile nations now, that Israel is not the only recipient of this now. The Gentile nations have brought into the people of God, like Rome, church that he's writing to, not just Israel. But in any case, his point stands that Israel has heard the message of the gospel. It's gone out. Well, maybe Israel heard the the gospel message, but they didn't understand it. This is verse 19, he says. Maybe they didn't understand it. No, they understood it. He quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 32, and then he quotes Isaiah from 65, verses 1 and then 2 in a moment. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says that God told Israel that he would make them jealous 
by finding those who are not seeking him. And then Isaiah said that God would be found by those who are not seeking him. And in the original context, Isaiah was speaking about this faithful remnant of Israel, 65 verse 1, this faithful remnant that would return to God. Paul here grabs hold of that concept and redirects it to support what's happening now with the Gentiles. These people are turning. They have found the gospel, and they are calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. So the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's people is not an accident. This is kind of what Paul is saying. This is not a surprise. This should not be shocking, Israel. You knew that this was going to happen. It was told to you a lot. This is one of the reasons why Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the prophet, is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Israel could have recognized the Messiah by reading the Old Testament, many places, but Isaiah in particular, and they should have received him. They should have known that this is the Messiah, but they didn't. And so in verse 21, he says, Israel is a disobedient and contrary people because they have rejected the word of Christ. So check out uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 2. It says this, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. And so Paul uses that to illustrate the fact that the Gentiles now are accepting the gospel. And then verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And so Paul now uses verse 2 to illustrate Israel's rejection of the gospel. Israel did not hear the gospel, and that's why they weren't calling on the Lord. Maybe this is what you're, you're thinking. Maybe that's why they're not actually responding. Well, no, Paul says they definitely heard it. Well, maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they heard it, but they didn't really quite get it. No, Paul says that they understood it. The problem was that they were hard-hearted and they were rebellious. God's inclusion of the Gentiles means that anyone can get in on this deal. So if you think of yourself as a disobedient and rebellious person, you are being offered the gospel right now. You are being invited to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look to him alone for salvation. How will you respond? I trust that you have heard the gospel, that God is holy, that we are fallen and sinful, and that Jesus makes a way for us to be restored back into relationship with our creator. I hope you've heard and understood that even. Not just heard it, but understood it. But don't leave here without realizing that there is more to faithfully responding to the gospel than simply hearing and understanding. Saving faith is said to include three acts. The first act is, of course, that you need a basic understanding of the gospel message as it is proclaimed. So you need knowledge of that gospel. And how are you going to do that unless it's heard, right? You can't believe something you haven't yet heard. Well, there's a second act. You have to understand that that gospel message is true. You have to assent to the fact that it is historically accurate. This happened. This isn't just something I've heard about, but it's true. It means we agree that our sin has alienated us from the life of God. We agree that Jesus is full of grace and truth. We agree that to be saved from our sin, we need to be reunited by faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, we agree that we need to submit ourselves to him to be made more like him. But we know that this is not enough, right? James says something about demons believing and shuddering. There's a third act of faith. One must exercise trust. Faith in God's promise of salvation through Christ must be responded to with trust. We must delight in the grace of God in Christ. 
We must rest in God's promises and cling to his promises for eternal life. It's a personal confidence that the message of the gospel is true. That's what confidence men means is confide, with faith. We don't just think that this is something we've heard or something that's true, but that's something that we can put our lives on the line with. We have confidence that he will not let us be put to shame. That's what's distinguishing the believing Gentiles from the unbelieving Jews. Faith. The ball's in your court. The gospel has been served to you, and now you've got to decide what to do with it. Will you respond in loving trust and faith? God stretches out his hand. He offers you salvation if you simply call on him. Salvation requires hearing the gospel, so the gospel must be preached and must be broadcast to all. Israel had access to this gospel, but they rejected it. And Gentiles, who were not looking for it, were found by it. So what will you do? Will you obey the gospel? And it told thy love to me But I long to rise in the arms of faith And be closer drawn to thee Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord By the power of grace divine Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. When I kneel in prayer, And with thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. 
Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. So I need to know that. I need to know that those who are persecuting us will not get away with it. I need to know that God hasn't missed a beat. You see, verse 6, For after all it is only just, or the word right, comes from the word righteous, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now we know from Scripture that we are never to repay evil for evil. Romans chapter 12 we're to leave room for the wrath of God. Because God is still saving people in the interim. We're not God. We leave room for the wrath of God, and he will bring his wrath in his time because he's a just God, and it's only just. And your enduring is a manifest evidence that they're going to be judged. Well, not only is it a manifest evidence that they're going to be judged, it's also a manifest evidence in a sense that you are worthy of the kingdom of God if you're enduring. Look at verse 5 again. This is a plain indication that speaking of their endurance in their persecutions, of God's righteous judgment, so that, or you could literally say unto, unto this end, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. You see that? He's revealing a purpose here, or unto this result that their persecution and the endurance thereof is unto something. It's unto something. It's a clear indication the persecutor is going to be judged, but it's also unto something so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. The term considered worthy is in a tense that's of a done deal, that you would be deemed worthy. Done deal. It's a tense that speaks of a finished action. Counted worthy, deemed worthy, declared even. It could be translated declared worthy. So, brothers and sisters, when you endure through sufferings, I'm not talking about the sufferings we think are sufferings. I'm talking about suffering for righteousness' sake, for doing what is right in Christ. You have someone in your family that says they're a believer, and you go to them graciously. Galatians 6, you share the truth with them. You share with them the other truths from other passages, and they don't respond, and they turn on you. That's suffering for Christ. A relationship broken because you're doing the right thing in the context of His grace so that they would be one under Christ. You suffer. You do the right thing in the body of Christ, and people respond wrongly. That can institute suffering in you. So he says here, your endurance in the suffering for the kingdom is a proof or an evidence of God's righteous judgment because he's just, but it also is a worthy indication that you are worthy of the kingdom of God for indeed which you are suffering. Now, the reality is when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from darkness. We were in the domain of darkness. Sin and death reigned. We were in Satan's domain, whether we understood it or not. And sin and death reigned, and we were on our way to the second death, which is eternal punishment. And Christ, by his grace, through faith in him, we were delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the kingdom of God is the sphere and domain of King Jesus. And he says here, unto or so that you may be considered worthy. Your endurance is a plain indication of God's judgment so that you may be considered worthy for the kingdom of God, which indeed you're suffering. 
It's quite a statement. What did the Lord tell Paul concerning the kingdom in Acts 26? Turn to Acts 26, verse 16. And this is the Lord speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus. It was Saul of Tarsus, and then he came and confronted him on the road. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Lord, Lord, Saul goes, who are you? He didn't know who he was. He didn't know the Lord. Acts 26, 16. Lord Jesus is speaking to Saul, soon to be Paul the Apostle. But arise, stand on your feet, for this purpose I have appointed you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Look at this. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Darkness is metaphoric for sin and evil. The sphere of sin and evil. Turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Tremendous reality. You see, suffering for Christ is an evidence that you have been delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, that you're counted worthy of that kingdom. Indeed, we saw that in First Peter 4. I read it earlier. It talks about not being surprised for the fiery deal that comes upon you for your testing. So some strange were happening. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. First Peter 4, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may result with exaltation. We'll see that later. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're a true believer. That's not talking about faux believers who are reviled in the name of Christ because they say everything, but they're wacky and sinful. It's talking about those who are truly manifesting the righteousness of Christ. You see, the reality is we need encouragement in the difficulties. Look at Acts chapter 14. This is an interesting passage. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city... They made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. How so? What did they say? How were they doing that? Saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be a rough road. The reality is we need encouragement in the midst of difficulty. Turn back a little farther in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 5. And you see the response of Peter and the disciples when they were told not to speak of Jesus. And they were brought before the council. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And when they brought them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers who raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross, he is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they intended to slay him. And I'm not going to read this part, but there was one Pharisee named Gamal, kind of a politician guy. And he thought, well, we don't want to have all this trouble. Time in the past, there was trouble and this and that. Let's just flog him and let him go. So notice what he says in verse 40. 
And they took his advice, that's Gamal. After calling the apostles, they flogged them, that's uh, torturing them with a whip, and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. And notice what he says, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had what? Been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Suffering does manifest the reality that you're the real deal. You see, we can get discouraged, but then we realize, wow, I'm enduring and suffering because of Christ. This is an encouragement that I'm worthy by his grace of the kingdom for which I indeed am suffering. It's quite an amazing thing. We wicked, sinful beings saved by the grace of God, now trusting in Christ every minute, worthy of his kingdom. How is that? Because of Christ. What an amazing thing. We're considered worthy because of Jesus Christ, because he's worthy. It's his kingdom, and he's the one who has saved us. So then, we need to see our suffering and endurance in a different perspective. It's a manifest evidence that those who are actually coming against us are going to be judged, and it also is unto the reality that we're considered worthy of the kingdom for which, indeed, we are suffering. When we encounter difficult trials, we need to see this. We need to understand this because it's an encouragement. These Thessalonians needed it. Obviously, God decided they needed it and that we needed it too. So what are we to do? As we'll see, we're to wait patiently. We're to wait patiently for God to bring about our ultimate relief and justice towards those who are doing evil to his church and his people. Notice what he says. Verse 5 again, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Do you see that? God is going to repay affliction with affliction. God will deal out retribution to those who don't know him, to those who don't obey the gospel. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. God has it under control in terms of the evil that is in this world. And we need to see that rightly. Well, why does this happen? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this to happen? Verse 6, For after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. It's the right thing. For after all, or you could translate it since. It's just. It's the right thing. Since it is just. God is a righteous God. He's bringing forth a righteous judgment. It is only just for God. Remember, don't repay evil for evil. Leave room for the wrath of God. He says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. And here he's saying, I'm going to repay. People who persecute. Now, we don't understand this because we're not very much persecuted. When you've been persecuted for righteousness sake by those who truly don't know him, maybe they're foe believers, whatever it might seem, then you want God to bring about his righteous judgment in his time if they don't repent. For after all, it's only just for God, or literally with God, to repay 
with affliction, those who afflict you. The word repay means to recompense, to pay back. It's the right thing. It's the right thing for him to do that. But it's also the right thing to give us relief. I need to know when you're suffering for Christ, when we're suffering, that there's going to be relief. You need to know that because it's not easy. There's the pressure of all the difficulties for suffering for Christ. The affliction, the persecution. I need to know there's relief. The term relief means of a loosening. To give relief, to release. It's the right thing for God to do that. You see, we're being persecuted unjustly in these situations. And they were being persecuted unjustly. And it is the right thing for God to do. But before we gain that ultimate relief, which will come as we'll see when Christ comes, he's still weeding out sin in our lives, using that in our lives for good. He's even using it to open doors for why we have hope in the midst of this sinful world. He's using it to bring us joy even in the midst of troubles. We can rejoice in the midst of those things, knowing what he's going to do. But we need to know there is going to be ultimate relief. So now when does this eternal retribution begin and when is that relief? Here's when it happens. Middle of verse 7. Or 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. And here's when it happens. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's when it's going to happen. Yes, we want God to take care of everything now, but ultimately he's not going to until this time. He does intervene. We see it all throughout the Old Testament in times, little pictures here and there. We see it in the New Testament. But ultimately, relief doesn't come until we have the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. He's speaking of the day of the Lord. He's speaking of when Jesus comes back in glory. That's when he's going to make things ultimately right. We've got to remember that. We need to look forward to that. You say, how can I say that's it? Well, it says when he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's future, right? Sounds pretty significant, doesn't it? Being revealed with angels in flaming fire, that sounds pretty significant. And then look down in verse 9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glorious of his power. When he comes, here you go, to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed, for our testimony to you was believed. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, there is a day when Christ will come again. You see, God the Son came to earth the first time in grace. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge. He came to bring salvation. He did talk about judgment, future judgment, but he came to bring salvation. His first coming was in grace. And you can either accept that and be saved, or you can reject that, and then his second coming will bring about ultimately the beginning of your final judgment. The Bible clearly talks about the reality of Christ's coming. Now remember for us that we are not destined for wrath as believers. First Thessalonians 4, we're going to be taken away to be with Jesus. John 14, a place he's prepared. And then he's going to begin the tribulation, the great tribulation, seven years. And he's going to come at the very end of that. We're not destined for this, but that signifies when he makes things right. When this world that is in rebellion to him is overthrown. When Jesus overthrows this rebellious world and takes back what is rightfully his, that's when he will bring retribution upon these people. That's when it begins. It's all together with that. There's so many passages. Let me share a couple. Look at Matthew chapter 24. 
See, Christ is coming again. You know, those who say, where's the promise of His coming? Everything's the same. They sound religious there too, Second Peter. But He's going to come. He's patient. Not one for any to perish. Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together the elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. You see, when Christ comes after the church is gone, there will be some who believe during that time during the tribulation, specifically Israel mainly. And he's going to separate them out when he comes. But this talks about the great glory of his coming. Let's look at Revelation 19. This is where we see the battle of Armageddon, where Christ comes and defeats his enemies. He's going to deal out retribution.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.